Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So our editor-in-chief, Derek Mead, said we should make a podcast full of lies and speculation. But I said we are a good journalistic outlet and we're not going to do that. Welcome to Radio Motherward. I am staff writer Jason Kebler and I've got Derek here. Derek Mead. Hi. Are you going to be lying on today's podcast? No, I'm actually very truthful, so nothing but nothing but honesty today. Yeah, and I've also got Kaylee Rogers. Hey. And Brian Anderson. Hard truths. Hard truths. And this week is All Fronts. What is All Fronts, Brian? All Fronts is a series about technology and forever war. So basically, we're looking at all of the far-flung ways that technology is driving military innovation in such a way that we're living and waging perpetual wars on all fronts. When you hear like forever war and like perpetual war, that kind of, are people desensitized to war and why should we care? And this kind of brings me to the title of a blog called The War is Boring. Um, And in many senses, we've kind of made war boring, but why should we read the things that are on all fronts? Um, Because what we're covering ranges from the highest of high tech and often beleaguered tech uh, down to seemingly inconsequential um, Stuff or not inc- inconsequential, but stuff that you might not ordinarily associate with warfare. For example, um, augmented reality. We had a good story that went out today about how basically tomorrow's battlefield might uh, be folded in some sort of augmented reality realm. Um, but yeah, so war has definitely become uh, like white noise to this point, Um, especially as war becomes um, more remote and data-driven. So on one hand, while there might not be as many like traditional boots on the ground, um, there are like drastically more and more people involved in war. So for example, to fly a, like a hunter-killer drone, you need like I'm, I'm going to get the the numbers wrong here, but you need like something on the order of like three times as many people that you need to fly a manned plane because you need people to like sift through all of the data. You need people to like 
control the sensors. You need people to actually fly the drone. So on one hand, while um, there might not be as much of a like fleshly stake, literally, in war as there used to be, there's more and more people being sucked into it. That's what people in the military say all the time about drones is that there's nothing unmanned about a drone. And they call them like RPAs, like remotely piloted aircraft. Um, you mentioned sifting through data. Kaylee, you did a very good job on a story about that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story? Sure, thank what you. What is big data when it comes to the military? It can. Be, it's everything, actually, which was interesting for me to learn about. So everything from, you know, the kind of big data that we're using every day when you use your app map, map app on your phone to uh, get directions somewhere that's pulling in a bunch of data points from everything from weather and traffic conditions and um, you know road changes and construction and a million other things that you put in and instantly gives you directions so you can imagine how that kind of data could also be useful for the military if they're planning you know some kind of mission they also need to know what the weather's going to be like what the road conditions are like what the environment's like where people have been spotted different things like that so that's sort of the smaller scale level that you can imagine then it goes all the way up to more complicated data like the stuff that people are creating so tweets and cell phone data and messages online which is just massive and massive amounts of data that's generated every day from people all over the world and There's the also like cameras everywhere, like on cameras, the sensors, sensors, body yeah. sensors. We're just getting more and more technology every day that's creating data that's then going online or going in the cloud or wherever it may be. And so uh, it can be really useful if we can find ways to sift through it, to organize it, and then to present it in a way where people who are making decisions can look at it and learn something from it or ask it a question. Is there ever a sense that there's like too much data and a lot of this is just going into like a junk cabinet somewhere and it's not like looked at? Definitely. The one data scientist that I spoke to said that's one of the biggest problems and sort of the challenges going forward is that they want to find ways to actually use this data. You know, right now we're only using like a small sliver of it just because of what we're capable of doing. And there's so much there, you just can't help but wonder what else you could learn from it, what else you can do with it. And they're trying to do it quickly and in real time, especially with the military, because you're dealing with actual humans moving around on the ground. Right. Derek, you're an editor, man. What are some of your favorite stories from this week? Uh, that's a great question. Um, actually, I really liked uh, Kaylee's story, which I did, because I was thinking about that, and it really hit on a point I think that is easily forgotten when people talk about Warfare is that it's really a matter of logistics more than anything, and that's kind of an old adage, but it's interesting in the sense of data, right? Like, if you think about, if you watch an old, like, you know, any old war movie of a historic war, you have to remember that everything that happens in the movie, that all of the hard, or the, one of the hardest parts is just getting people and things there and everything that they need to do that. And now when you add data and the massive wealth of data we have, it's like this really tantalizing opportunity to say, like, what if we really could understand like, you know, weather patterns and people movement patterns and like talking about what people are do, doing on social media and pulling out like everything we possibly can to have a better, better picture of what's happening on the ground. Now, how do we put that into place to actually create something that's like effective for us? Then it's right on the cusp, it seems like, where it's not the military is not quite sure exactly how they can process all of that. But at some point, it seems like they just want to have like, we literally understand everything that's possibly happening right now. And now somehow we put that to use to make smarter decisions on where we move people and where we move things. But it's just, it's, 
it just seems to add so much perspective to think about that and that they want to have a holistic perspective about everything moves versus just saying like, here's guys and with guns and let's just have them go shoot things. Like it's so much more complicated than that. And you have to imagine that any kind of data that's being produced, whether it's from, you know, wearable tech or tweets or anything else that's out there, the military's looking at it and seeing if they can use it in some way. Mm-hmm. So on the flip side, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say on the flip side, on a more like low tech um, angle, uh, the story I really liked this week, we published today, um, was about uh, these kind of like DIY Mad Max tanks made in Ukraine. So it was like um, in Ukraine, there's a, there were a bunch of volunteer battalions that basically said that they, you know, they banded together to fight off uh, Russia when, you know, Russian separatists were um, more or less invading the country. And one of those um, groups, uh, Azov, I believe, Azov Battalion, um, someone can totally correct me if they want, um, but they basically bought a old uh, engineering like tractor factory and now are converting um, Russian or Soviet Russian tanks that were converted into tractors. Now they're converting them back into tra- into tanks so they can fight their own battles. And it's crazy because they're super cheap. It costs like fifty or $100,000 versus millions of dollars to buy them from the government. And now these guys are just in a warehouse building their own tanks and uh, it's just absolutely nuts the photos we got from her are really cool those photos are incredible um do we have any idea how effective these tanks are compared to say like a u.s tank or i guess a russian tank since they're involved in a conflict there so I have a, only a vague idea. Um, I thought that honestly that they were going to be kind of bootleg because I mean you see in pretty much every battle all over the world people making um, you know weaponized uh, vehicles. Um, a classic one is like the Toyota pickups all over the world that people literally put any possible thing on. And uh, I, in this case is actually um, at least they claim a lot more impressive. One of the tanks that they're building that our reporter went and saw. Um, has like more than a meter thick of armor on it, which I thought was incredible. And also they said that um, they had uh, developed reactive armor for it. So armor that when a um, projectile hits it, it explodes to reflect the force of that in, that um, projectile. And I thought that was something, I mean, that's been on tanks probably for 20 plus years, 30 years or more. Um, but to see people that are doing that basically on their own uh, in a factory just somewhere outside of Kiev is f- unbelievable. Like, it's so crazy. And I, we haven't tested that. So, uh, but I don't really think that they're blowing smoke up our ass to say that they're doing that. I mean, it's really, really incredible that they could do it. Yeah, they look very much like real tanks. Uh, we're going to move on in a second. No, because you hear DIY tang. It's like, what does that even mean? Like, yeah. uh, is it some sheet metal like stapled to a car? And it's like very much not that. It's no, like, they're full, no, yeah, they're, they're full on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to your earlier question, they're probably slower and less accurate and don't have as big of guns as like an American or Soviet or uh, sorry, American or Russian tank. But I was blown away. It's incredible. Yeah. Soviet Russia doesn't exist anymore. It like kind of exists. Or I I read a think piece suggesting that it did the other day. I think in the Atlantic. I'm not sure. Uh, Before we move on to another topic, um, is this a dire week of stories? Or like, is this, is there anything uplifting here? Because obviously war is generally a pretty bad thing. And forever war sounds very bad as well. But in editing these stories, I mean, is there any sort of hopeful tone to any of these? Absolutely. So a story that we published today, actually, uh, by Brian Kastner, who's a former uh, U.S. military bomb technician 
and uh, a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, he wrote a, a great story today about uh, an elite group of Air Force uh, pararescuers. So uh, they're basically the next evolution in the battlefield medic, which goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, always having someone like IRL right there to perform trauma uh, medicine to, to people uh, on the battlefield. Um, but uh, yeah, check out uh, Brian Kastner's story. Um, it's interesting to see a group of people who are uh, in the shit for the express purpose of saving lives. And they're saying that, you know, they're addicted to not dying and they have this like crazy toolkit of, of um, basically like, you know, the latest emergency rooms uh, devices, but like all man packable. So they have everything on them and they can just administer um, uh, aid like right there on the spot and get people uh, to an actual war hospital within the golden hour is what they call it. Um, and that piece was incredibly uplifting. Um, but that's not to say like everything that's coming out this week is. <laughs> Wait, can is, I also just say that that piece is fucking crazy? Yeah, it is insane. Like, I just I really had trouble fathoming the idea that you would be someone who is jumping out of an airplane into a war zone to go save someone's life as they've been like blown up. Basically, yeah, like yeah. the the levels of just like how intense that is all the way through is so hard to process. And he's such a good writer that I really enjoyed it. But yeah, just like. Yeah, I don't know. I it, it can't even process it at all. I think we're so removed from war, we being like me and probably many journalists who don't go over there or like know anyone who who has been to war. Uh, I think of like war medics as like people with bone saws like in Gettysburg cutting off like people's limbs in the battlefield yeah. or like bite the bullet, like that sort of thing because we just haven't really like been ex that's what we're taught when we're when we grow up and we're not exposed to you know medics these days and we're taught that you know drones and robots fight our wars these days and like tanks and aircraft carriers you don't think about people like on the ground necessarily yeah uh, kind of outside of like the ied type like horror stories you hear about yeah i mean yeah despite what i just said earlier uh prefacing the theme week there's still plenty of people that are actually boots on the ground so you need people to be able to insert themselves into hairy situations and rescue people. So yeah, Brian's story, Brian Kastner's story is uh, a fantastic piece of writing and reporting and you should read it on motherboard.vice.com. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about something besides war because that's what people do. They talk about war for like a minute and then talk about happier things. So Brian, can you please tell me what the hell pizza Getty is? Before we get to Kaylee's <laughs> food story, Pizza Getty apparently is a big thing in Montreal where uh, I went a couple weeks ago for a wedding and I saw Pizza Getty signs everywhere. And uh, yeah, apparently it's a Quebecois delicacy. Uh, it's a pan pizza that's been cut in half. And in the middle, uh, they just put like a big old spoonful of uh, spaghetti and they just pour gravy all over it gravy. and is there a top yeah, to it, it or no uh yeah so there's there's like a, a 
tomato sauce or gravy on the pasta. But not like more pizza on top. It's not a pizza sandwich. It's not a pizza sandwich. No, no, it's 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 just it's all on one plate. But it's yeah, I'll, I, it would make sense if you see a photo of it. But is a, it pizza with spaghetti on top? It's pizza with spaghetti, sort of it, in the middle of it. <laughs> Kaylee, you are Canadian, not you're not from Montreal, but please defend your country right now. I, I, the, oh, I when I go to Montreal, I eat bagels and poutine. I don't I've never heard of this pizza getty thing. I must you must have been in a unique part of town or I just haven't spent enough time there. I don't know. <laughs> Let me tell you, we are in a, a unique part of town. Well, being from the California, pizza getty district. Yeah. yeah, being from California, I'm a huge fan of burrito tacos, so it's I kind of get the vibe. So I mean, it seems like a great idea. Yeah. In uh, a dude from Montreal who actually he got married, <laughs> um, he said that someone should really open up a pizza getty place in New York because pizza is much better here, and it's probably a really great idea. Drunk the people getty is it. probably better as well. The getty is probably superior yeah. as well. Anyways, speaking of food, Kaylee, you wrote today about antibiotics and food and how we're all drugged up, I assume. I didn't get a chance to read the article yet, but when it comes to antibiotics in food, what are people talking about right now? I'm sorry it's not more uplifting. We're going back to depressing news. So the news peg today was a new report that came out from a bunch of watchdog groups And they were sort of ranking the fast food joints in the U.S. based on how frequently and and how much their menu is composed of meat that uh, is raised using human antibiotics. Human antibiotics are obviously antibiotics that we use in humans. And if we use them too much when we raise our cattle and our pigs and our chickens, then it can breed superbugs. So that's the problem. And... Of the 25 restaurants that they reviewed, 20 of them got a failing grade. So it's just kind of like more bad news. Everybody's using antibiotic-laced meat. What I was looking at was why is this? We're always hearing from the government saying, oh, yeah, we're making changes. We're doing this. Uh, What's going on? Why why are those changes not coming into effect? Or or why are they not effective? And, And why do we keep getting these kind of like horror story reports of how bad it is? Okay, tell us about that in one second, but what are the five restaurants, if you can remember them, that are safe to eat at without getting a side of medicine? Uh, So they were grade letters. So the only two that got an A were Chipotle and Panera Bread, but even they didn't get a perfect score, but they did get in the A category. So really just Chipotle because Panera is gross. Pantera Bread. (laughs) Pantera Bread. Pantera Bread, yes. Um, (laughs) That's a... Okay. <laughs> Do you remember the other non-failings? This um, is a pop quiz. I believe McDonald's got like a C. Because they just made a big switch, or rather they're planning to make a switch. Right, when so it they're comes switching to, eggs, to yeah, chicken and eggs that don't use human antibiotics. However, they're beef still. Yeah. They have this new buttermilk chicken sandwich that looks very good, according to a commercial I saw. McDonald's did? Yeah. I think I saw that. That did look good. Yeah. They did like this food truck commercial. Anyways, uh, when is this ever going to change? Because, yeah, the FDA kind of always says we're going to – well, the FDA doesn't always say they're going to make changes, but there's always pressure on the FDA to make changes, and they're always warning about antibiotic-resistant bacteria. But, you know, nothing ever seems to change. So why is that? Part of the problem is the FDA has sort of been riding on these – not even requirements, like suggested 
changes that they made in 2013 and for drug companies to no longer sort of sell their antibiotics as growth promoters. So right now farmers use antibiotics both to make their chickens and pigs grow nice and fat, but also to prevent against disease. So the uh, FDA wants... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To cut out the sort of making them fat part, the thing is that their, their regulations aren't aren't by law. Nobody really has to comply with them. They're more of a suggestion. The drug companies say that they're going to, but they actually have until the end of next year to do it. And it's just kind of like a, there's not a lot of teeth to it. Well, part of the preventing illness is because they're all living so cramped together, right? I mean, yes. they, in theory, if they had more space, they wouldn't spread disease so easily. That is part of the problem. Yes. Okay. <laughs> just so we know. Yeah. So... Right. So, I mean, the FDA has sort of been riding on that and saying, look what we're doing and we're going to do better monitoring. And the president had a, you know, a national action plan that he released earlier this year that said a lot of the same things and not a whole lot of details of how that's going to happen, but just saying this is what we want to happen. Where the real change is coming is from uh, consumers like getting like hot and bothered about this and making a stink and making McDonald's force their uh, suppliers to change their practices. Like, McDonald's wouldn't be doing that unless people were complaining and saying, I'm going to eat at Chipotle instead, so. Is there a difference between getting hot and bothered and making a stink? <laughs> <laughs> no. Sometimes if you combine the two, it's really bad. Yeah, hot, stinky, right. bother. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think what's interesting about this, too, is um, it always, people love to say, like, vote with your dollars or whatever, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But in this case... I think the government's in a weird position because a there's meat production is so centralized that it's become like such a huge force in the country that it's hard to change that uh, on the flip side or on yeah i don't know if it's flip side but on another part of the angle is like anytime they're saying we need to change the way we produce meat at this point is going to make it probably make it more expensive so it's really hard for politicians to say like a i'm going to go against the meat lobby b i'm also going to make food meat more expensive for poor people when we're trying to live the american dream where everyone can have a cheeseburger anytime they want you know um and that really is something that's like a visceral connection that people have like if you can't buy chicken at the store it's too expensive then you're what the hell's wrong with america you know mm-hmm. uh, so i think it's it's a hard road to change and i think it really comes down to people having to say like i don't want this like i'm not going to buy this anymore and i don't know i don't know what'll happen i think that that's the best way to, i mean this isn't going to solve the problem entirely but it's a good sort of way to leverage the power that we do have so that once companies start changing over and, you know, they're supplying to McDonald's and whoever and suddenly other companies are, are going to start to fall suit or those companies are going to go and, and be on the side of of reform because they want everybody to be on the same playing field and they don't want their chicken to be more expensive than their competitors just because they're doing what McDonald's or whoever has told them to do. Right. Well, it's almost unfathomable how 
you can go to McDonald's and until very recently could buy a McDouble for $1. That is like two hamburgers. They're very small, but for $1. It's the most American thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And now it's like $1.49, which is an outrage. Um, and, you know, you just think about what goes into that, like the shipping and the labor and the meat and the bun, which probably costs less than a cent. But and there's even one piece of cheese on there. So it's like, how how is this even remotely possible? And it's because they're farming at such scale. And, you know, once you start moving away from that, it's impossible to keep that price, the price the same. Mm-hmm. Um, does anyone else have anything to say about food before we move on to one last thing yeah i was actually wondering if you guys like i don't um a, i don't go grocery shopping very much uh these days because it's so expensive in new york like eating by myself that sounded really sad <laughs> <laughs> the, the difference between like buying food and then making it often is that much but i feel like uh one thing is like antibiotic free meats are more common in a lot of grocery stores i've been seeing especially for a barbecue and i also feel like the price difference has changed a bit and i wonder if you guys think that's something where if we all just say like look there's no more and we we stop using antibiotics so much we focus more on having organic meats or whatever um is that going to just make meat slightly more expensive but cheaper than that option is now like does the do the prices converge a little bit let me get a converge motion with my hand that's what i would predict i think the price is inevitably inevitably going to go up but if everybody was on the same playing field and working under the same scheme i don't think it would go up so much that people couldn't afford to eat who currently can. Yeah, I'm not an economist, but I mean, <laughs> that that seems to be where we're headed. And uh, I mean, part of this whole like debate is how cheap should food be, especially for poor people? Like, should they be able to buy a hamburger for a dollar? Because, you know, you raise it to a dollar fifty and that's a major change for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, it, I have noticed a lot more antibiotic free meat, though. And that's definitely become a selling point uh in a way that it wasn't even like two three years ago like you maybe heard about free range stuff back then but uh you definitely hear more about the antibiotics now which is certainly a good thing and there's other countries that have successfully been able to do this or at least drastically reduce the amount of antibiotics they're using in food production especially in europe and i mean everybody didn't starve to death there are a lot of other factors that go into play there but i mean there are models that we can look to to kind of gradually get to a point like socialism <laughs> that, you sound like you're talking about socialism <laughs> everybody just moved to canada yeah. <laughs> uh so today i wrote about a very cool breakthrough in science uh have any of you guys ever heard of optogenetics well, not till today well, here we go on the yeah, jason kubler uh power hour here using so. using light right Yes, using light. It's a technique developed in 2010 in which genetically modified cells can be turned on or off with the use of blue light. Oh, is that the one where they gave the mice boners? It is, That's yes. That's the one I remember, too. Blue <laughs> light gives mice boners. That's crazy. That was a great headline. That's, That's just, a landmark study. I mean, it's great it was science a landmark for study. just like, this will stick in everyone's brain forever. Yep. Yes, so. that was a study published earlier this year in some random, extremely small <laughs> journal, and it was flagged by my friend who's a chemistry student, doctorate, doctorate student at uh, University of Texas, 
And he's like, hey, would you be interested in this? And it had come out like maybe three weeks before. And I was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Basically, scientists genetically modified mice so that when they shined a blue light on them, they had instant erections (laughs) and they could turn it on and off. So it's a pretty powerful technology. Um, And one of the main problems with it is it's very invasive. So if you've ever seen a story like covering this, because scientists also use it to like watch memories form to simulate the effects of cocaine using just light to turn on and off pain, like all sorts of crazy things. Uh, but if you've ever seen a video or photo of this, it's always a rat in like a tether harness situation and they have their head chopped open. Uh, their skull is like, saw it in half because you need to shine the light directly onto the brain which means that it's good for studying like how the brain works but it's not very good at doing things like clinically I guess um, because you can't just have like a blue light shining into your open skull all day uh, and live so a scientist out of the Salk Institute in California developed something called sonogenetics which uses an ultrasound to target um, and do essentially the same thing. And uh, he did it in a nematode at the moment, but he says that he can do it in mice as well. He's working on that right now. So uh, it's obviously very early science, but it's very exciting because he described a future in which people with Parkinson's have like basically a hat that they wear that is constantly pounding their brain with uh, sound waves that kind of like stimulates the brain so that they don't have tremors. Um, and I mean, who knows if that will ever happen, but the idea of having like a hat that controls your brain is pretty crazy to me. How intense are the waves? Uh, (laughs) They just bathe over you, man. (laughs) No. So it's not about the intensity. It's a, so basically the way optogenetics works is they found like a I may be wrong here, but it's an invertebrate of some sort that is sensitive to light. They found like a gene in there and they chopped the gene out of that uh, invertebrate and put it into mice using a virus to kind of target specific cells, like whatever they want to do. So they're changing the genetic makeup of these cells so that they're sensitive to light. um, And that's how they're able to turn them on and off. And basically what he did was found a worm that has sensitivity to sound uh, in the same way. So he said that basically uses sound waves to know whether or not it's being ripped apart when you like pull the worm. Uh, I don't know whether the worm is able to do anything to prevent itself from being like torn to shreds, but I think it's like maybe if it's crawling on the ground and it's like, oh, I'm stuck on this corner, let me stop going or something. So anyways, uh, it's, the, the cells become sensitive to this sound. Um, it's ultrasound, so it's kind of just like you do a sonogram. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not really about the intensity of the sound. It's about the uh, sensitivity to it um, of the cells. You mentioned Parkinson's. What are other things that they could do with this? Uh, well, it's pretty much the same thing that they've been doing with optogenetics, which is turning on and off various neurons. So... Uh, you know, an erection is like a chemical reaction and they're able to turn on and off the channels that control like blood flow to the penis, for instance. Uh, (laughs) Memory formation is like neurons are being created 
um, and forming connections and they're able to kind of like watch that happen. Um, I would assume that maybe there's um, an application in something like Alzheimer's, but I, I really don't know for sure. Um, I wonder if like sleep disorders, mm-hmm. if there's any potential application there too. Maybe for like, that. for like, yeah, yeah, even like I'm thinking of like sleep apnea. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. And maybe you could like, uh, like narcolepsy or we could perhaps find out why narcolepsy occurs and then use it to induce sleep in like uh, people who can't sleep. I have no idea. This is me wildly speculating, but. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also, I mean, it has application, you talk about memory, it has applications for therapy or for people like, you know, if you have PTSD or like, you know, really triggering terrible memories. Um, and I mean, it, it has a potentially super wide ranging way of just kind of regulating any brain process more or less, as long as it's something that's relatively localized, um, as far as I know right now. I think it's one of those like visions of probably my favorite uh, like small thing in any sci-fi movie, which is the the mood regulator from Blade Runner, where you like dial in. Like I want to be like, it had like hundreds of different options because I think at one point she says she wants to be like number like you know three fourteen or something or hopefully three eleven. But it's like you know puts you in a mood that's like, well, I want to be like wistful and kind of melancholy but nostalgic. And it's like, oh, that's exactly the mood you want to be at this moment in time. And uh, I don't know. It's I feel like. In one part, like being able to have a very like clear like clinical application for something is incredible, and the state of medicine right now is unbelievable. But also, when you're talking about like having a hat that just forces like gives you boners and like all (laughs) kinds of like crazy shit, I'm just waiting for people to be like, I want to wear this insane hat and I'll just feel like really cool all the time, unless I want to feel really bummed out and just like have a little dial on it that you type in, you know? Sad hat. Yeah, I, yeah, the big breakthrough well, here. Right? It could be sad. It could yeah. be happy. It could be like weird. I don't know anything you want. Hundreds of hundreds of options. Right. The big breakthrough here is the hat, basically, because the reason this has never been tried in humans is because humans don't want to get their heads chopped open. Like you can't walk around with half your skull open. So the fact that this is non-invasive is like absolutely huge. So is it just like a bunch of electrodes? There's like... there's no electrodes at all, as far as I know. Um, it's so a virus is injected into the body, and we've gotten very good at targeting specific cells with the virus. Uh, so this virus is then uh, it's a retrovirus, I guess. So it attacks certain parts of the brain, or you know, you can also do it in like your leg or something. I think uh, in the mice, the penis boner mice, they did it in like the leg because that's where this like receptor for yeah everyone knows that (laughs) where they come from yeah uh and then once the cells are infected they are then sensitive to this sound so once the sound is sent uh, at them they basically turn on or off depending on whether the sound is there or not got it um i was talking like the, the hat itself though how does like so the hat doesn't actually exist at the moment right now it's just uh, that's like uh how it could be delivered in the future right now it's like a speaker essentially a very small speaker because he did it in uh nematode which is like you can't even see it so this is still um i mean it's microscopic uh this is still very early days i mean this is the first time anyone has ever done this but uh he says that he's doing it in mice now but hasn't published the paper yet so uh, the fact that it can be done in vertebrates is pretty huge. 
Um, and yet I was wondering if maybe in the future we could have like prisoners who, uh, were controlled by like sound hats, <laughs> which could potentially be plausible. But he did tell me that it's impossible to basically like have a loudspeaker and have this work. It has to have contact with the skull or with what, with mm -hmm. the body, which is slightly reassuring to me at least. So we don't have like these dystopian loudspeakers like controlling the populace, which is cool. <laughs> At least good. <laughs> so yes, we are out of time in our new segment, our new segmented format. So uh, does anyone have anything else they want to say? And where are you guys going tonight? What are you doing? Wait, I want to hear more about this taco burrito or burrito taco. Uh, I made that, that up. What? But uh, what? there was a. Uh, the legendary burrito spot at my university, UC Santa Barbara, was called Freebirds. Um, burritos are pretty good. I'd usually eat one whenever I finished my last final of any quarter, so sometimes like 8 in the morning. And one of their options was a queso nacho rito, which they would make a quesadilla, um, then open the quesadilla, put chips inside so it's crunchy, and then make a burrito. And then you have this thing that was like $12, which is, uh, you know, 30 pack or a burrito. I think I know which one I'm picking. Um, but every now and then you'd go for it and say, uh, you know, here's this massive thing that's like a, the size of a RV, but it's a burrito nacho quesadilla. That sounds incredible. Yeah. I don't know if there's like a flip, a switch that gets flipped when you become like 27, I think 27, where you no longer find these like gross foods appetizing, these like amalgamations is that the correct word yeah. these mashups of foods to be interesting like you don't want to eat that i don't want to eat that really i want like one or the other you don't want to get I, down onto pizza i don't i i would have a couple bites of that but i don't want like a full one i think maybe it's because my stomach is like shitty now and i get sick all the time i want both but of those things and also a margarita i also don't want Hell sandwiches yeah. <laughs> with like other sandwiches in them or sandwiches with like french fries and like also chicken tenders and also the bread is grilled cheese like a and slice also of pizza with fries. little pieces of okay, pizza well, on top of it you're describing some weak bullshit right there that's definitely different than the burrito that i'm talking about which is delightful experience that's both ooey gooey crunchy and munchy I had what I was going to say in my head and Both I tuned you out. Things. So I could have very Paid well been. spokesman for Freebirds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This episode of Radio Motherboard is sponsored by Freebirds? Freebirds? Yeah, it's, I don't even know if it still exists. Use Make code sure Derek for free cheeseritos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, if anyone is out there is listening to this and feels La Vista right now, just send me a, uh, a burrito in the mail and I'll definitely appreciate it. I'm on the internet. You can find me. Um, that was not the right way to end this. <laughs> uh, we are on the internet, though, and you can find us. If you found us, you probably know where we are. But we are at Motherboard on Twitter, motherboard.vice.com. Uh, you can tweet at me if you have any sort of feedback. And we very much like feedback. Uh, it's at like Jason underscore Kebler, K-O-E-B-L-E-R. And yes, I do like notifications. Tweet, tweet, Twitter notifications make me feel more popular than any sort of notification, I think. Validate, Jason. Please. <laughs> Anyways, thank you. Bye. We love you. See ya.